0: You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lassiter, co-founder and CEO of Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. Listen to our podcast to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Listen to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Listen to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. On today's episode of Startups for Good, I speak with Rafi Levy, who's the founder and CEO of Dots, which stands for Data of the Soil. He's got a bachelor's in science from Technion in Israel and master's of science from University of Michigan. Has over 35 years of engineering, project management, business development, and business management experience in Israel and worldwide. The company's earlier stage than normal becomes highly recommended by a trusted investor. We talk about how much fertilizer is wasted and turns into pollution because farmers don't have the data. The difference between ag tech and climate tech and how they can be merged. Talk about doing business in different countries and cultures. We talk about how important it is to be optimistic as a startup founder or employee. Talk about working with scientific co-founders and how to find early adopters. I think you'll enjoy this, so please stay tuned. Welcome to Startups for Good, Rafi. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure. So you talk about potential savings of $80 billion in wasted fertilizer.
1: That's a huge number. That's a huge number. And when considering the ripple effects of this number, then it's a much greater number. But we can get into that. But let's start first... Let's start with a start, as they say. You you see, fertilizers today uh, construct 50% of the world food because of the fact that we use them. Without them, we'd be at half capacity. The downside is that we we overdose to make, make sure we have enough food. And this overdose is valued at $80 billion. Now, the problem is not only that farmers lose $80 billion, the problem is that this contamination worth $80 billion, creates medical problems, create water problems, creates the the, the Mexican dead zone because of the Mississippi runoff. The problems are not only the direct expense, the problems are the, the derivatives or the ripple effects of these expenses. So yes, it's a huge market.
0: So what's the traditional solution for farmers to decide whether or not they have enough fertilizer?
1: you'd be surprised but the traditional solution is the the, the application uh, protocols given by the fertilizer companies and sometimes by the seed companies which tell you to give a given quantity per unit area at at uh, predefined periods along the, the plant's uh, life cycle. The thing is that these uh, uh, protocols do not take into account specific site-specific, issues like like absorbency of of the soil or like non-absorbency of the soil and they do not take into into account uh, the existing levels in the soil pre-application so because we're so dependent on fertilizers these protocols always endorse overselling over application to make sure we don't mess up the season and we don't lose crops because Mostly, this is the, the important thing. The side effects are just now beginning to take a great uh, place on the stage.
0: Is it a tragedy of the commons that people are polluting the public space for private benefit? Or there's something more to it?
1: No, 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 no. I don't, I don't think there are bad people in this game. I think there are misguided people because they're driving blind. Uh, in a sense, if they were to develop the vehicles, let's say they were developed to develop the Tesla without a speedometer, because it's such a powerful car, you'd have no idea where you are and how fast you're driving. But driving without a speedometer does, doesn't give you the tools to, 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 to level or to, to limit your speed. You're just tempted and the car takes you and you drive. Pretty much when you fertilize without the tools, without the way, the, the, the ability to observe, you're fertilizing in the blind. You're walking in the dark. And and that's the reason it comes. And because you wanna make sure you have enough yields. The, The profitability in farming is so marginal in some cases that you cannot risk going down in yields. You always have to ensure more yields. So better safe than sorry is the way they work.
0: So the technology from your company allows people to measure the amount of fertilizer that's actually getting in the soil and available to plants.
1: Yes, in a sense, there are all kinds of technologies to assess fertilizers by measuring other parameters like salinity or electric conductivity, and then trying to derive how much fertilizer is there. But it's not a measurement, it's an assessment based on other parameters. The the, the best or the most scientific method to see fertilizers is soil samples in, in standard laboratories. What we, our breakthrough is that we took this standard laboratory miniaturized it and buried it in the ground. And our technology, unlike other technologies, which are electro selective uh, uh, diodes or or, uh, ion selective electrodes, our technology can stay in the ground for years without deterioration and without drifting in the readings. So it's stable and it's accurate continuously for years. And that's the breakthrough.
0: And how does someone use it? How many do they have to install? How do they put it in? How does that work?
1: In principle, we are not linearly related to area or to land size or to farm size. We're related to the number of water blocks you operate. So if you have 10 water blocks on your farm, you will be putting 10 sensor systems, I would say, not 10 sensors per se. It depends on the size. An average water block in the States is 23 acres. Some of them run to 120 acres like the pivot uh, robots or the pivots that run around the huge field. They're about 120 acres per water block. Now, if you irrigate 120 acres with one water block, it means that you distribute your, your fertilization through your irrigation pretty much evenly across your land. So we don't have to put hundreds of sensors on 120 acres. We have to put a few for redundancy, for statistical data. If your water block is 23, like the average water block, we'd still be putting a few for, st- for redundancy and statistical data. So we're not talking in the hundreds or thousands per farm. We're talking in the low tens or even single digit numbers.
0: So it sounds like a powerful technology and an important need. How did you get involved?
1: Well, my story, uh, I, as they say, I should thank covid Because I was running my own business and I was traveling half the world back and forth from Israel. I'm located in Israel. And I was traveling back and forth until COVID shut me down. And after a few months, someone approached me and said, why don't you try something new? And they connected me to three scientists from the academy, two professors and one PhD uh, graduate. It turns out that these guys were working on this development for over seven years they wrote down four patents, they proved the technology, but they had no clue how to take it to market. And that since I come from the market side, they, they tied up with me or I tied up with them. And thankfully, they let me join them and lead the company. And we set dots exactly a year back in October uh, 21, and started moving towards the market. And where are you in that process now? Well, we've got the first uh, market-ready product in testings, and we should be ready to deploy the first commercial systems, Q1 or latest Q2-23. In other words, in three to six months, we're going to be out in the market with a working product because we've been working. The technology has been proven for seven years. The technology has been tested and, and vetted for seven years. And now we need to take, or we had to take it from the technology demonstrator level into the product level, and that takes good engineering. There is no, not much R and D done, and there is no technology gaps. It's just solid engineering and hard engineering, and we're we're eighty to ninety percent through that. And our first product line should be ready, as I said, within three to six months to start hitting the ground commercially. One thing I should say here is that we're not selling sensors. In other words, our product is not a sensor. Our product is the data because half, I would say 70% almost of of the product offering is machine learning and AI algorithms, which manage to, uh, how should I say it, to segregate or to see through the contaminants in the soil. One of the biggest limitations Technology, technologically, one of the biggest limitations before we, we showed up was that when you take soil samples or water samples from the soil, they're contaminated with multiple uh, uh, contaminants. Most of which are not harmful, like DOC, dissolved organic carbons, which are uh, decayed leaves or, or greenery and dead uh, corpses of animals or or worms or whatever is there in the ground. These are the good side. This is the good side of the ground. And they mask, they hide the the nutrients when you do a spectral analysis, when you do the analysis or when you use the technology we use. So our breakthrough was in the algorithms which can take derivatives of what we find in the ground and directly see the nitrate or the nutrient levels specifically in spite of the masking. So did you...
0: Pick that as a business model, or that's something that became obvious through talking to customers about how to approach what you're selling?
1: Our our business model is part of understanding the market itself. Farmers today have multiple, uh, I would say, um, issues to address or problems or headaches. And the last thing they need is five apps to look at in the morning. They don't want to open an app for, for nutrients and an app for irrigation and an app for weather. They want a the one-stop shop on their PDA or on their smartphones or on their computers. They want to see the scope or the, the entire uh, kaleidoscope of parameters and take a decision. Now they're experienced guys, they're smart guys. They know what to do. They just need the facts. Now many people give them the facts on weather, that's obvious, it's over the net already. Many people give them the facts on soil moisture because these are the the, the prevailing technologies for the last 20 years, but no one gave them the fact on nutrient levels in the ground because of technological barriers. We will be bringing that to market in a few months, as I said, and then they'll have the full picture. Now, in order not to uh, wear them down with multiple apps, we're going to tie up with technology providers and we're going to, with a one-stop shop uh, shop solution for them, whether we are the the supporting uh, technology or we are the leading technology with other technologies supporting us.
0: Right. And as you're going to market, how does the seasonality of the business affect your ability to grow quickly as a startup?
1: That's a good, that's the million dollar question, because in ag, there are two uh, hindering factors to, to accelerated growth. One is the seasonality, as you mentioned, because if if a farmer comes to me, if a farmer with 100,000 acres comes and, and tells me, let's just show me a proof of concept on five acres or 10 acres, and then we'll go all across the board. Then he just, he just casually said, prove yourself for six months, and then we'll discuss. Because that's the way it goes in farming. So that's one side of it. And the other side of it is, is tradition. Is I would say, a tradition or cautiousness. Farmers, as I said, live in a cutthroat environment of profitability. It's always marginal. It's always sensitive to, to seasonal problems, to weather events, to global warming, to, to floods. They can't risk another problem of losing crops or yields because they tried to save. So they're gonna be reluctant to start with. We know that, and that's, that's a hindering factor. The thing is they're wasting so much money that even if, if the, the, and our business model is such that, that we're, we're talking of license or we're talking of SaaS, So we're not asking for upfront payments. So farmers don't risk anything. We put the system in the ground, they see the value add, they see the savings month on month and they pay us a fraction of the savings on a predetermined uh, agreement it's not that we're sitting on their on their books and seeing the savings it's that we know roughly what's the ballpark and that's the way we build our business relationship with a partner or with a client
0: and how do you pick that percentage conceptually
1: well first of all we have to cover our costs to begin with we have we we, we are we're trying to do good to the world but we're not pure philanthropists. We have to earn a living, especially being a startup, you have to to make sure we reach scalability and we don't run out or or dry out to begin with. So balancing our cost and required profitability on one side and the potential savings or the actual savings, because we will be showing, you know, the the proof of the pudding is in the eating. We will be showing the the savings before the the long-term commitment kicks in. So balancing the potential savings on one side and the need to earn on the other side, we feel that that, uh, our profit, our our, uh, license fee or service fee or data fee will be somewhere in the tune of 25 to 30% of the savings.
0: And I've heard that this is the theoretical sweet spot. If a startup is going after helping create value or savings for a company, if you're getting too close to 50%, customers will push back, someone else will come in. And if you're less than about 20%, you're leaving too much on the table. So it's interesting. It sounds like you agree this 25 30% is the sweet spot.
1: First of all, I think you're right. I think it is the sweet spot. Both psychologically, as you said, people don't want to feel, why are they taking my money? Even though a year back, he buried this money in the ground without even knowing it. So it's not that I'm taking his money, it's that I'm digging the money from the ground and avoiding the contamination. But having said that, I know the psychology of people. We are people, I'm, I'm a person, when someone gives me a deal or gives me an offer, I always try to see what's happening. But I try to run this business and to build this business in the concept of I don't care what's on your plate, I just need to make sure that there's what I need on my plate. So as far as I'm concerned, if I can do it for 5%, of the savings, I'll do it. If if this is what I need, I I won't feel bad if the farmer makes, instead of earning 3% or 4% profitability, he'll be at 12% profitability. I'll be more than happy because I'll have a loyal customer as long as whatever I do take covers what I need. But you're right, the sweet spot in principle is about 20 to 30%. Uh, And we have to remember that there are dealers or intermediaries in between which also need to, to to get whatever they need to get. So yes, uh, this is roughly where we're looking at. And we will have to to fine-tune as we go along.
0: Where do you think the market is for this? Do you do you start with first-world farmers? Do you start with larger farmers, or is that the wrong approach?
1: Well, first of all, let's let's take a, a bird's eye view or even a satellite view. Uh, The the agriculture market is about, in the US alone, it's about 1 billion acres, but it's pretty much 2080 on irrigated and rain-fed agriculture. Our low-hanging fruit, our first, our prime objective is the irrigated uh, farming, because that's where the, the influence of fertigation or fertilization through the system is much greater, and that's where the influence the the value of what we bring is much, much faster. We have value on the rain fed territory as well, but that's more value to the seed companies and the fertilizer companies, which can improve on their products, knowing the the ground behavior in each and every farm. But looking at the low hanging fruit, the, the irrigated farming, we're gonna start there. In this, we're probably going to start in greenhouses, net houses, vegetable uh, growing, and then row crops or orchards, etc. We've done tests on tomatoes. We've done pe- tests on, on bell peppers. We've done tests on wheat. We've done tests on, on multiple uh, crops. But in a sense, we're crop agnostic because we're not the fertigation system and we're not the, uh, the agronomist. We're just giving... The decision makers, the data to decide properly, to to have to take data driven decisions. So we're going to start, you know, like sometimes people say that they have a strategy and they have a tactic. Sometimes a strategy is a successful tactic. We're going to start where we can. We have some farmers that are talking to us and they want us to do a pilot on their land. And if they're influential enough in the market, we'll do it because that that, will create the ripple effect. of of success. And there are some huge farmers with hundreds uh, of thousands of of acres and they want us to do pilots. And honestly, it's a bit concerning at this point. It would be much safer for me to take such a commitment in six to, to eight months, not today. Today, I prefer to start with an average farm, 400 acres, 600 acres. The average farm in the US is 440 acres roughly. I'd like to be in that place for the first, I'd say, 10, 20, 30 farms, because the risks I will be taking are less in case there is a problem.
0: And so you think the U.S. is the first market?
1: Yes, definitely the U.S. is the first market. I, I, I can even say that in most likelihood, we would start somewhere in the Midwest. I don't have the exact location yet. We're still studying the opportunities in various territories, various states have various schemes for foreign companies to come in. I need to see what they grow. I don't want to reach states like, you know, Idaho or Iowa, which run hundreds of thousands of acres of the same crop, but half of it or most of it is rain fed. I prefer to go to states which have irrigated agriculture like Tennessee, like Indiana, probably California, and then we'll start expanding to other states. Definitely Texas. And then we start expanding to other states. We are not going to go all across the board in the first uh, few months because we're going to, you know, if you spread too wide, you, you fall on your butt. We have to be very <laughs> focused on where we go.
0: So you have ties to India as a company? Not as That's, a company,
1: as, as a person. I as worked, a person, okay. I worked in India for close to 20 years um, before joining DOTS, before setting up DOTS i was uh, pretty I was traveling back and forth between Israel and India, doing uh, business development in India for Israeli companies. And that's where i i I grew two uh, traits. One is patience because everything moves slower in India. It's a beautiful country, but everything there is very slow. the time the timeline in india is 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 days and weeks, not hours and minutes, like in the West. And uh, on the one hand, it's pretty good, it's comfortable. it's nice. On the other hand, people that come from the West. From the U.S., from Israel, which are regular to the hustle and bustle, they go crazy there. So it took me some time, but I grew patience. And secondly, I learned how to work in in a foreign culture. I grew up in the states, and but working in India gave me another perspective on on different sides of the world. So I, I feel that I pretty much have what it takes now to take dots worldwide. I know the states very well. I know India very well, which is a huge farming country. And I know pretty much a lot in between.
0: Wonderful. How have you found fundraising for this business? Is the ag tech market ready for these kinds of innovations? And how did funders react?
1: When I wasn't raising funds, uh, I found the market very easy because everybody was approaching me and asking me, when are you starting the round? And then about six months back, the the market crunch started developing and growing like a like a snowball, and now I find the market very difficult. People are reluctant to invest. People are afraid of the of the development. You you said before about the scaling up in agriculture, um, um, VCs and even angels today, which two years back just poured money because they saw the returns. Very quickly today, they're saying, "Let me think about it." Today, even even uh, early stage VCs tell you, "Come back to me when you have a client base," which doesn't make sense because if I had a client base, I would go to a, to a Series abcs and not an early stage uh, VC. But everybody is kind of uh, hunkering down and waiting to weather the storm. So now it's a very difficult market, and ag space is even more difficult. The good thing we have going for us is that we are in the ag space, but we are very much a climate-oriented solution because if we eliminate the downside of fertilizers, which is groundwater contamination, greenhouse gas emissions, and poisoning of people, there are 60 million Americans drinking contaminated water. 60 million Americans drinking contaminated water. This is a number no one should live with. So if we can eliminate that, we are pretty much sitting on two plates, the ag space and the climate savings or the climate uh, support space. So And that space has much more money. With a bill passed a few months back in the US for about $400 billion for R&D and climate support or climate savings technologies, there is more money on that side and thankfully we're we're exactly we're we're the link between the two sectors of agriculture and climate tech
0: and the climate tech area is receiving a lot of attention
1: it's receiving attention and it has budgets and i i would say that the again in the climate unlike agriculture which is it's it's reluctant and it's conservative in the climate people dare because there are no other options and because and because there's a lot of money on the table so they dare take the risk as well the good thing is that climate unfortunately is not getting any better so the need will be there even if they come back come up with newer uh, fertilizing technologies and all monitoring and ensuring that we do not continue to poison the world will always be there
0: And this mission of climate and, you know, not polluting, this is resonating with investors and with partners.
1: Very much, very much. Investors, in in fact, some investors that I've met bluntly told me, why are you telling me to invest in ag space? You are a climate company. Why don't you say that? Say it. It's easier for me to take a decision on that. And then I have to tell them that, yes, on one hand, I am a climate company. On the other hand, I'm an honest climate company and my penetration angle is through ag. So I have to say it up front and not not, not cover it up.
0: (laughs) I like that. I like that answer. I'm an honest climate company. Well, I was not insinuating
1: about others. But I'm saying it's not purely... I don't suck CO2 from the air with huge uh, uh, vacuum cleaners. And there are technologies trying to do that. They might even work eventually. But it seems to me a bit like on the science fiction side. But again, eventually they'll they'll succeed to crack this and and do it. But we, we will bring the change through transforming the ag sector into optimizing fertigation and not into losing 40% of the fertilizers applied into waste.
0: So as a founder and a business leader with expertise on go-to-market, how do you decide when something is still a science project, as you say, or it's ready to start a company around?
1: First of all, I think the simple decision is if you have the money to to set up a company and start transforming a technology into a product, do it. Because hitches will come and hurdles will be there and, and potholes will be there. And the, run, uh, the, the journey is it, it has its, takes its course and takes its time. So if you can start, start. We started, as I said, we started the company a year back, but we started the work seven years back in the academy. We spent over half a million dollars in research and in trials, and in proof of concepts, in the academy phase, before we became a company. And then when it was ready, we took it out. So, So that's one side of it. The other side of it, and sometimes it's the chicken and egg story, if you have a client, go to market. Even if it's not ripe or not mature technology, then match the expectations with the client. Some of our test fields, are with early adapters. They know that there will be glitches because we're still fine-tuning the communication and fine-tuning the technology and fine-tuning the fact that sometimes, you know, during development stages or during engineering stages, you find that the material you selected cracks in the sun, so you have to replace it or this or that. That's standard engineering development. And if you have an early adapter client, just go there, do it dare to do it and tell but but tell them the truth tell them there will be hitches i'm here to support you're not going to suffer the downtime will not be more than a or b or c and and let's grow together i have a client that is getting the system almost free of cost not free but almost free of cost because he's giving me tremendous amounts of support and 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 experience or, exper- or experimental data on how my
0: how sturdy my system is Any tips for other founders on identifying an early adopter?
1: Optimistic and trusting people. That's all I can say. Because there will be hitches, as I said, and things will, if anything goes wrong, you know, Murphy was right. If something can go wrong, it will. But if your partner knows that if something can go wrong, it will, but he trusts you to be there to fix it, then he's the right partner. If every time there's a glitch or, or a communication gap of, of, of 20 minutes in the system for some reason, because I don't know, because some cell dropped or, or something, the, the client's attitude is, well, you sold me a non-working system. I don't, you, you're, you just want my money. You're not giving me what I deserve. You'll You'll never grow with him. You need to have, Trusting people, which which believe that you're you're trying to do good, patient enough to let you run the course and do good. And it's it. And I, I personally believe that that uh, you know that human nature is good to begin with. I don't think that people are are blamatory, as people in general. There are always uh, there are always odds and ends. We, we, we live in, in a Gaussian world, and there's a little of everything. But I, I personally believe in trust and I believe in the goodness of people. And I believe in the, the fact that people want to succeed and want to support. And if you come straight forward and you tell them the truth and you tell them where you stand and you tell them what the limitations are and you tell them what the obstacles that you expect will be. And then you tell them, let's grow together and you're gonna save so much money. Yeah, there will be glitches but you're gonna be the first one to save. Your entire neighborhood of farms will look at you and say, wow, why is, why, why is he doing it and not me? Because you're going to save 40% of your expenses. But there will be glitches. But I'm here. I'm not going away. I'm not selling a fire and forget system. I'm here with you, holding your hand. And if he trusts you, you have a good partner. And I don't see clients as, as clients. I see them as partners along the way. It's a journey, especially in ag space.
0: So a trusting, optimistic person, you build a relationship based on trust. You don't oversell them. You tell them how it's going to be. I'm struck that you're looking... For partners who are optimistic and trusting, perhaps the best way is for you to also be optimistic and trusting and helps you identify those people.
1: I, I don't think any startup person, let alone founder, but even a worker in a startup, if he's not optimistic to begin with, he won't succeed. Because there's so many hurdles, there's so many obstacles, there's so many Look, you raise funds, you meet hundreds of 100 uh, 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 people and 99 say no. One says yes. The rare cases in which the first one that you meet says yes are rare. So you have to be optimistic. You get, you get one slap, you go home, you try again tomorrow, you get another slap, you go home, you try again tomorrow, and you just never give up. So if, you, if, you, if, if you're not optimistic, you break down, you give up. And as, as far as trusting or not trusting, I don't think it has anything to do with startups. It has to do, I think, with I I don't know if it's a mindset or a heart set, but it has to be with what's, what's your DNA. Do you, do you trust the world or do you fear the world? And at the end of the day, I don't think we can very much influence reality. its it, It's kind of, I wouldn't say predetermined, but it's kind of, it takes its course. And whether I trust, you or don't trust you the result may be the same so i prefer to trust
0: beautifully said thank you i sometimes think that a startup team does need enough pessimism on it to be motivated to work blind optimism may lead to complacency what do you think
1: Well, uh, first of all, you didn't hear me say blind optimism. You said said, uh, what I do say is hopelessly optimist. My wife always says, you're so optimistic, you never plan for the worst. And I say, no, 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 I'm so optimistic because I completed planning for the worst. And now I hope for the best. I always plan for the worst. But then I put it aside in the drawer. It's pretty much like a contract. You sign it. And if you you signed a good contract, you never read it. You never read it again, it's in the drawer, you never see it again. If you signed a bad contract or you found the wrong partner to sign up with, then all you're gonna do is is work on the contract and not on anything else. I don't believe in in placency. I don't believe in in, uh, blind optimism. I definitely believe that when you finish it, when when you run a test and it fails, you sit down, you say, well, let's let's recover because tomorrow it's gonna go right. Now, it's not a gambling attitude. It's not you gamble. It's not a lottery ticket that you continue to buy and hope for the best. No, you have to analyze. You have to debrief. You have to figure out what went wrong. But you also have to have a gut feeling tomorrow is going to be a better day. Otherwise, you, you break down. And, and I don't think it leads to tranquility. It leads to, it leads to energy. And pessimism leads to depression, I would say. to Depression in, in the work sense, not in the psychological sense. If you say, look, we failed three times. There's no way to do this. You're not going to succeed the fourth. If you say we failed three times, now we know what not to do. The fourth is going to be right. Th- then you're going to succeed the fourth. I think it was Benjamin Franklin that said, I've never failed in anything. I just found, found 10,000 ways that don't work. I think it's often credited to Edison Edison you're right Edison you're right yeah
0: By the way- beautifully said I, I think that's that's well spoken if I can turn the clock back a little bit to how you chose to work with your co-founders were you looking for a similar philosophy like this or there other things that you did to make sure it was the right fit
1: well first of all when when they when i was offered to, to join dots and to found dots with them first thing i said to them is let me learn this because i'm not from the ag space and i took about 5 months to do my homework on the ag space and then i came to them and i said look this is what i learned the only thing i can tell you is two things one i come to work and two i'm not, i don't have ego issues i i know How to tell you, listen, I don't understand. Or listen, I need your help. I'm not uh, driven by ego. By the way, that's one thing in any business, but definitely in a startup, park your ego at home. Go to work without it. Because when you bring ego to office, you never succeed with anything. Just fighting. And luckily for me, my founding partners pretty much have the same attitude. Because again, maybe it's faith. Maybe... Let's go back to India for a minute. Maybe it's karma. It's predestined. It has to be. They're good people. They're they're trusting people. They're honest people. They're hardworking people. Uh, they've done a beautiful job. And lucky for me, and that's not always the case with, with technological founders, which fall in love with their solution, they totally let go. They said, take it. We're here to build it with you, but you lead. We're not gonna tell you what to do because we, we know how to research and publish papers. We don't know how to make a business. That's your, that's your job. And it's working great together. we've been together for a year. We've been talking since January 21 because we, we've been dating for about five months. As I told you, I did my homework and we've been dating until we decided to set this up. And we've been running for over a year together and it's working beautifully.
0: I'm glad to hear that. Any tips for other founders on how to take a technology out of the academy and bring it into a company?
1: Honestly, I don't have tips. I can tell you one thing. Israel has you know you know sometimes there's something called a halfway house. in the, in other domains, and after after hospitalization or after a mental breakdowns, there's a halfway house in which you kind of recuperate and go to market. And go back to, to, to civilization, let's say, after you were hospitalized or something. In Israel, there is, there is a transition entity. There, is, there are sort of accelerators. And now accelerators exist everywhere. They exist also in U.S. and in Europe. There are acceler- uh, startup or high-tech accelerators. The beautiful thing in Israel is that these accelerators do this matchmaking process. In other words, I was introduced to the DOTS technical founders by the accelerator. And they've walked us through for about six months. Literally, uh, they, 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 first of all, they were the matchmakers, and secondly, they were kind of marriage counselors to make sure that the team uh, atmosphere builds up, that the team expectations builds, and that we, we develop jointly the tools to run a business, whether it's the business side of building the, the startup, whether it's the legal side support. In other words, they kind of took the technology from the academy, Put it in a limbo, put it in a, in in, a, in an escrow, where they made sure that we learn how to handle it, and then they gave it to us to handle. and And these uh, transition pipes or transition support systems have pretty good success, uh, track record. They've got, they've got pretty good. I can tell you the one that we we've been working with. I think they had something like twenty one technologies taken out to the market and about 16 or 17 of them are still running after two or three years, that means a pretty good success rate in startup world where 95 shut down
0: because they fail. Thank you for that. Anything else that you'd like to share with potential future founders about how to be successful?
1: Again, uh, what I can tell you from my humble experience, patience, trust, do your homework. There's a lot to learn, regardless how much of an expert you are in whatever you do. You might be the best uh, electro-optical engineer or the best cyber uh, software developer. It doesn't mean you know anything about fundraising or anything about, or, or you know little, not anything. Everybody knows something. But there are so many disciplines in a company in general and in startups, even more, I would say, that just take your time, trust people, leave your ego at home. Don't be afraid to raise the flags of I need help or I don't know. Not knowing, I I used to say when I was working in India that sometimes in some cases, stupidity is a virtue because telling people I don't know buys you time. One of the problems with people is that their ego drives them, and when you ask them something they don't know, they just generate a, a, an an answer, which may be way off track, and they they miss they either burn themselves because if you know the the domain, then you feel then you see that they don't know, and if you don't know the, dom- the domain, then they throw you off track. So it's not, it's not a, a, it's not a shame, and it's not weakness to say i don't know give me time to learn or i don't know i need support and and in anything we do in life again we're not the the lone rangers and even the lone ranger was
0: never alone thank you for that don't do it alone and don't be afraid to admit when you need to learn more i think it's great advice where can people learn more about you or the company online? They can find me on LinkedIn. They can find the company on LinkedIn or on the web. I'm here.
1: Uh, I'm I'm constantly here. I'm not very active in the social media. I don't have Twitter. I don't have Facebook. I'm old school in that sense. But I I definitely have LinkedIn because it's a working tool.
0: Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thank you for having me here. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. I enjoyed it. I always enjoy being questioned because it make it, it keeps me alert, and it, it it lets me ask myself questions to make sure that I'm you know I'm, I heard some startup, someone that made a very good exit. I won't mention his name because he he doesn't know I'm mentioning his name, but I heard him say that when you develop a startup, the first thing you have to tell yourself is never fall in love with your solution. Fall in love with a problem. Because then you're not blindsided. If you fall in love with your solution, you might lose focus on what the problem was and, and does the solution cater for it? And he keeps saying, f- fall in love with a problem. Keep thinking of the problem, not of the solution. And then you can always reflect, does your solution cater to the problem or not? So I like when people ask me questions, it keeps me alert. It, it lets me ask
0: myself questions later on. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player and please give us a rating and review. Startups for Good is brought to you by Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. If you're inspired today and want to reach out, please visit our website, purposebuilt.vc. Thank you.